They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Soul, the podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. My guest today is Nani Janssen-Revendo. Nani is an award-winning human rights lawyer specialized in strategic litigation at the intersection of human rights, social justice, and technology. Nani is also the founder of Systemic Justice, a new organization that seeks to radically transform how the law works for communities fighting for racial, social, and economic justice. Nani has an extensive background in promoting human rights in the digital context and in defending journalists and activists in some of the most repressive environments in the world. She previously founded and built the Digital Freedom Fund, which supports digital rights litigation. Throughout her career, Nani has seen firsthand how unequal power structures in society affect people's ability to exercise their rights and achieve justice when they have been harmed or wronged. By broadening access to judicial remedies and strengthening the ability of communities to leverage the power of the courts, Nani's new organization, Systemic Justice, will help dismantle the power structures that underpin racial, social, and economic injustice and work to develop a more just society. Through her public speaking, academic work, and teaching at some of the world's leading universities, Nani is shaping the next generation of human rights lawyers and public policy professionals. I'm very grateful for having Nani on SALT today, and our conversation will center around systemic justice, its trajectory, its foundational values, its very transparent recruitment process, and the importance of community-driven strategic litigation. We will also speak about the appropriation of terms such as decolonize, decolonization, and intersectionality by capitalism and by white-dominated organizations. We will speak about the importance of love, vulnerability, and collective care in social justice movements, hear about one of Nani's favorite books, her souls, and a memory that had an impact on her life. Thank you so much, Nani, for being here today. Welcome, Nani. Welcome to Soul the Podcast. I'm very happy that you're here with me today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start with our first question. Take us on a little journey and tell us something about yourself. It's always very difficult, right, to not lead with your professional <laughs> affiliation. So maybe I start somewhere else. I am I'm Dutch. I also have French nationality from the side of my father, who is from Mali, West Africa. Uh, his father uh, fought uh, with the French Allied forces in World War II <laughs> and uh, was therefore uh, awarded, um, I guess, awarded between uh, quotation marks, uh, French nationality. And that goes through the bloodline. So uh, this means that I also have French nationality, uh, even though I've never lived in France. My mother is a white uh, Dutch woman uh, and uh, they met in Paris and I'm here now, and my sister, who is uh, three years younger than I am, uh, is another result of that uh, of that meeting. 
I, uh, at the moment, I live in Denmark. Uh, I live about an hour outside of Copenhagen, but I grew up in Amsterdam, where I was born and raised, but left about 12 years ago or so uh, when I left my job at a law firm and uh, finally could start what was my dream job, which was human rights work. And I moved to London to work for an NGO that uh, defends journalists and bloggers around the world. And that really kind of sparked the fascination with and all my work with uh, strategic litigation. So litigation work, work in the courts that can bring about bigger change um, in law, in policy or in practice. I did that for about five years and then uh, spent some time at Harvard at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society to work on a project that looked at collaboration around litigation. So how can you get lawyers to work together with academics, with uh, activists with technical experts, and how can you make sure that together you have the biggest chance of success when you undertake court cases? And then moved on to found uh, an organization called the Digital Freedom Fund, and that organization supports uh, strategic litigation on digital rights, so human rights in a digital context uh, across Europe. I did that also for almost five years, uh, and uh, while I was there, initiated uh, a decolonizing process for the digital rights field, because it became very clear very quickly that um, the field of activists wasn't very representative of um, all the diversity that we have in our society. And uh, after that, moved on to found the organization that I'm building at the moment, together with the team, uh, which is called Systemic Justice. Um, I have a dog. I have a husband who's Danish, which explains why I'm in Denmark, I suppose. And I'm 45 years old. Thank you. Thank you for this beautiful introduction. And you mentioned it. You uh, founded an organization, Systemic Justice. And that's also how I found you. And uh, I was already impressed from everything that I could see on the in the internet. And I was like, okay, I have to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And I was so happy when I got a positive response. Yes, so of course, I want um, you to tell us about systemic justice, a bit about its trajectory, the team, foundational values, um, and anything else that you would like to share with us. Great, thank you. Well, I've been working as a lawyer and supporting strategic litigation for about 15 years altogether now. I started training at a law firm originally, and then, as I just mentioned, I moved into human rights work and then ended up yeah, providing financial support for strategic cases. And over that period of time, it became increasingly clear to me that there was something that wasn't sitting very right um, quite often in the relationship between lawyers and between uh, and litigating organizations and uh, the communities that they were supposed to be serving. Best case scenario, you saw a very traditional lawyer-client relationship Basically, the idea like, come to me with your problem, I'll think of a legal solution for you, you instruct me, I go off and do this, and then I come back and report to you. And in worst case scenario, it ended up being extractive. I think this became particularly clear in the context of the work that we did at the Digital Freedom Fund, where we received grant applications, right, for strategic cases, and would get proposals where people wanted to challenge a piece of legislation or a policy that concerned marginalized communities, but they were not at all visible in the project plans. And that raised questions with us, and we would ask those questions, like, where where are the people <laughs> that this is about? And uh, 
often would get an answer that basically said, well, we're first figuring out the legal strategy and then we'll go talk to people. And that made me realize, and also uh, some of my co-conspirators in, in, in thinking up systemic justice, realize that this is something that was fundamentally wrong and that it's something that we should be able to do in a different way. And that inspired systemic justice. Uh, and what we're building is really a model of community-driven litigation work. So really making sure that communities are really driving the work that concerns them, that they remain in their power and that they are the ones who are setting the agenda, who are setting the bigger objectives and who are making the choices in the process and are the ones who can really drive the work. Um, with us basically being the facilitators, being the, the law firm uh, of the movements that we that we serve. So that's the, the big change that we're trying to bring about uh, to really work in a way that communities can use strategic litigation as one of the tactics in their bigger campaigns for change. The idea that um, litigation is strategic comes from the fact that it's actually interlinked with other tactics such as advocacy, campaigning, policy work, etc. And the idea is to really make all of those different tactics work together in order to bring about bigger change. That change will quite often take a longer period of time. Uh, so we're really investing in building longer term partnerships um, with those communities. Um, we are uh, a first uh, in Europe. We're the first Black-led, majority Black people of color organization in Europe that works on strategic litigation with an intersectional lens and also, of course, with this model that is new. We are a remote-first organization, um, and uh, we are working to build our organization rooted in our foundational values of intersectionality, anti-oppression, and justice, which means that whenever we build a process, whenever we develop uh, any methods or anything at all, we make sure that we check that against our foundational values to make sure that we are really truly living that in practice. And that is a beautiful challenge that we're undertaking uh, together. Uh, it means that a lot of things are, yeah, in a way more, take more time, take more reflection uh, to build. But we think it's worthwhile to really try and do this both in the way that we work with our partners externally, but also internally in how we build the structures of our organization and how we work together as a team. Thank you for introducing us to systemic justice and explaining all these things to us. You, if people go on, onto your website, they will find a lot of resources. They will find reports uh, about the communities you've worked with or you are working with. Um, and you, they will also find, uh, among other things, blog posts. And um, while I was reading them, I uh, came across the, the blog post, uh, Building Systemic Justice, Reflection on Using the Master's Tools to Fight for Communities' Rights. And there, if I may quote you, you say, personally, I'd like to see the white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy be ground to dust tomorrow. Burn it all down and build something better and new. But the reality is that this will not happen overnight. And in the meantime, we need to have better options to strengthen and reinforce our struggles for justice for all in our society. Litigation is one of those options. And while this may not be the tool of choice for everyone or for all scenarios, it needs to be an option that is equally accessible to all on the terms of those whose rights are at stake. You explained already some of this to us, but 
it would be great if you talk a little bit more um, about the importance of community-driven strategic litigation by reflecting on the statement that I've just read. And you also mentioned before that often you have this manipulative, let's say, relationship or extractive relationship. And these are things, of course, that you want to break and dismantle. So if you can, if we can dig a little bit deeper into the, the, the subject. Of course, with pleasure. Um, fundamentally, um, what we're doing is, is something that um, relates to access to justice. We have uh, decent legal systems here uh, in Europe. But they just don't work the same for everyone. It's super easy to find a lawyer, to uh, file a claim, to defend any legal action that has been brought against you, to get um, a lawyer to defend you if you've been accused of um, any criminal activity. If you have uh, the resources, if you have the knowledge, if you have the networks, if you can essentially buy the knowledge also. You don't have to have the knowledge yourself. And it's fundamentally different uh, when those things are not the case. We started our work last year by engaging in um, an extensive community consultation process. Um, we spoke to organizations, movements, and collectives all over Europe to try to understand what their experiences were in resisting systemic injustices. And um, what the firefighting was that they were doing, and also what the bigger kind of like opportunities for change were that they saw. And what was a really interesting recurring thread um, in those conversations was the mind shift that people had to make to actually think about the kind of work that we were building. What people were saying to us was like, we are so used to the system being weaponized against us, even trying to consider it as something that we can use to our benefit, to advance our causes. It's just such a, wow, <laughs> such a very different uh, frame of mind. And I think that that really illustrates how difficult it is for people to make that step, right? To engage with the system, even if it could actually at times be a, a tactic, be a tool, that can be really effective to strengthen the work that they're already doing. So besides building the, um, the litigation work together with community partners, again, making sure that they are in the lead, that they are in their power, um, and that we basically are making sure that the legal work happens to bring that vision to life. We are also doing work to build the knowledge and power of communities about strategic litigation. What is it? What can it do for your campaigns for change? What are the possibilities, the limitations? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? And to make sure that people actually have the have the opportunity to even consider it, which at this point in time just quite often isn't the case. That was also something that came out of a lot of the individual conversations that we had. Um People sometimes saying like, okay, we know that we kind of reach the end of the power that we are able to wield through campaigning uh, work and through our advocacy work. We know we need to go to court. We know that this is the next step for us, but we don't quite know where to start. We don't know what the risks are. We don't know what to consider or who to talk to. And we want to make sure that that barrier is taken away so people can actually properly consider all the different tactics that are available to them. And what I was reflecting on in the, in the piece that you were just uh, quoting from is that, of course, like if you 
um, have an abolitionist view. Um, none of these systems are fit for purpose, right? In the way that they exist at the moment. And what I tried to say was indeed like, well, I also, I would also like to see everything replaced by something better. And the journey there might be longer than we're able to afford to wait. So in the meantime, we need to make sure that what we have at least works better, not um, in a sense of um, what I think people refer to as, as, as reformist reforms. It's not to kind of keep the status quo in place. We still need to push for that much bigger, bigger change, right? A fundamental overhaul of the systems that we have. And at the same time, there are immediate needs uh, that have to be met. There are uh, causes that need to be advanced, uh, people that need to be defended. And we need to make sure that that can happen in a much better way. And that's what we're trying to do. Yes. And actually, the first thing that came to my mind was, was this, that people don't believe in the system. There's so much mistrust. There's so much fear, anger, disappointment. How do you build that trust? How do you oh, change that, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that the, the mindset or something that has been really internalized? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. It ties in in a way. So it ties in in a way to um, to another fundamental question, and that's just about the idea of what is success, right? Uh, when it comes to litigation work, I am um, very firmly have the belief that it's actually not so much about what you do inside the courtroom and what you obtain there, as much as it is about the whole constellation of uh, the campaign that you are organizing. You can have examples where you actually lose in the courtroom, but you can bring about the change that you're pursuing through a different avenue. And I think that one of the things that's standing in the way right now, quite often from creative use of uh, litigation tactics, is this fear of quote-unquote losing, of setting a bad precedent. Whereas this is also something that you can think through beforehand. Of course, it's a risk. And of course, you don't want to create work that's going to make the threshold to access justice much higher for the next person who's trying to pursue it. And it is possible to come with a strategy where you know quite well that you're not going to be successful with your legal claim, but you're going to be successful with your campaign. So it's also about making you know, the, the perspective broader and looking at a bigger picture. It's also about taking a longer term vision of the change. A lot of the bigger cases that, you know, are very present in the, in the public awareness that, that set big precedents, such as, um, uh, the legalization of, uh, of same sex marriage, um, et cetera, built on lots and lots of lost cases, but they were stepping stones in a longer term campaign. One of the other things that I would say uh, is very high on the public uh, awareness uh, radar at the moment are all the wins in the climate movement. There's lots of really successful climate litigation taking place right now. And it's really easy to forget that a lot of these victories uh, were decades in the making because cases were being lost, were being lost, refiled, tried different tactics, etc. And I think that a lot of those cases also were less successful because the public perception and the public awareness of the climate crisis just wasn't as great as it is now. Um, and 
that is also another thing to think about, right? Taking a, a, a longer term view. And whether or not we have to convince people, I don't think so. I don't think that I would necessarily be the person to say that, you know, you should take your matter to court. First of all, not every issue is well suited for litigation. Sometimes a good decision can also be a strategic decision can also be to not sue actually and to not litigate. That's just as fine. But I do think that it's important to have the option to consider it as we were just talking about. It's about having the option and about being able to make a well-informed choice whether or not it's suitable for this particular circumstance, for this particular case, for this particular campaign, um, and being able to then either take it or leave it. Mm. Thank you for explaining it further. Um, I have more questions, but I will see. Maybe you will answer them with my next big question. You know, uh, I'm part of different organizations and. Um, I remember uh, one of them suddenly was using terms like decolonizing, intersectionality, activism. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> What is happening? And then, you know, especially with the term intersectionality, you see it now in bags and coffee mugs and uh, yeah, m many people or yeah, universities are using it, decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing this, decolonizing that. So I read an article um, that was actually about the climate change um, that uh, that I found also. I don't know if it's on your website, but I found it on the internet where you say um, decolonizing and intersectionality uh, have become buzzwords, metaphors that appear in all kinds of spheres. Narratives of BIPOC and queer grassroots activists have been appropriated by white dominated organizations, struggles that marginalized communities have been fighting for decades are suddenly co-opted, turned into unique selling points that pay lip service to change, appear on t-shirts and coffee mugs as part of the capitalist system we live in that doesn't miss an opportunity to commercialize and control everything. So, sorry, just to correct myself, I'm not quoting you here. I'm, I read a quote where you say something similar to this and I rephrased it and added a few uh, more things for myself. So I would like to hear from you, what do you have to say on those developments and what do you have to say? And this actually was from an article where you talk about climate change being a very wide-led movement. Um, so that's where I found it. And yes. <laughs> I will stop now because then people will think, what is she talking about? They will forget my question. So yes. I was really like, wow, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you did say something like this. Um, no, thank yeah. you for making me sound very eloquent. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, I think that, well, I mean, the realization that this is happening, right, is, is, is quite broad. Uh, I think with anyone engaged in activism work and I recently was part of a conversation where the question was asked, like, should we then like stop using these words because mm. they've been co-opted by um by the establishment, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't think we should um just kind of like hand over um our our own terminology and our own framing. And just because someone else is using it as a label for something that's much less profound. Um, and perhaps even contrary to what the original meaning of that word was in the context of its, its proper context. Yeah, we shouldn't just give that away. 
I think it's a it's a pervasive issue, right? I mean, there's a beautiful uh, short book uh, that Olufemi Taiwo wrote about uh, elite capture, which really discusses this, in, particularly in the context of identity politics, but then just generally, like this idea that there's always these processes where you see a radical concept that gets stripped from its deeper substance and its deeper meaning because, you know, a political elite takes it over and deploys it uh, for its own interests. Um, yeah, those are cycles, apparently, that we that we have to deal with. It's important to keep on calling it out, I think. I find it <laughs> frustrating quite often um, to see that you see better labels, you see better language, but you see the same dynamics taking place and people repeating the the language and the framing and the phrasing from from activists um to sound <laughs> to sound better to sound quote unquote woke and uh, tuned in and actually not living any of that and i think you know there's many different ways in which you can do that you can just ask questions like what what do you mean by that and how does that show up in how you do things in practice and you know there's quite often a lot that doesn't add up but i think in the end, if in its original meaning, uh, in its original context, it's meaningful to the work that you do, you should just stick with it, even if someone else is misappropriating it, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's the strength of capitalism, that they uh, commodify everything. And once they see, oh, they are getting too powerful. Let me tell you, like one of my teachers, when I did my master's in gender studies, he always says, capitalism is very fast. And there are always many steps forward. We do something and then they take it and they make something different <laughs> out of it. So, yeah. And what I also find amazing about systemic justice, and I think many other organizations can also, when it comes to this, learn from you. And, and I do see that the recruitment process is changing, maybe very slowly, but it is changing. But um, I find your recruitment process amazing and um i would really like that you share with us here how you recruit how you build systemic justice how you build your team you you say we are building it as a team we're slowly building it we're not rushing we're reflecting i i guess you do a lot of things collectively so um share with the audience with the listeners how do you recruit yeah i started thinking more deeply about recruitment um already at the, when I was uh, running the Digital Freedom Fund, because I found that it quite often just didn't work <laughs> doing it in the way that we're all kind of like used to, I suppose. I don't, and try to kind of figure out how can you make sure that these processes become more accessible to different people? Because I noticed that we were just getting the same kinds of candidates <laughs> whenever we sit, put out one of those standard ads, right? That you, that you know, like, you know, so many um, years of experience doing X, Y, Z, uh, this degree, you have to speak these languages and send a cover letter and a CV and, and so on. And then with systemic justice, because we really wanted to also here uh, operationalize our, our foundational values we started looking into this uh, more deeply. So one of the things that we thought is like, we should take away like the mystery and the stress of the mystery <laughs> in a, an application process, right? So one of the things that we're doing there is 
making sure that we host information calls beforehand. Um, it serves a dual purpose. One, it is to just give people a bit more context about the role, um, give them a better sense of what to expect, like team-wise, etc. Um, and also open up uh, the door to ask questions to us directly before deciding to apply. It's a transparency thing, but it's also, I think, helpful to make sure that people can get more information if they're not sure if they should be trying out for a role, right? Um, and it's not in a way like, you know, we, we we don't answer questions like, this is my profile, would you consider me? Because that's not what it's for. It's to ask more questions about what the role would really entail, like how the organization works together, etc. But, um, you know, if someone sees an ad and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm intrigued, but maybe, you know, this is not quite for me, they have an opportunity to engage before deciding to spend the time <laughs> filling out uh, an application form. And um, then I go to the application form. The, the application form with us is answering a set of questions that relate to the role. It's like usually a question about like what excites you about it? Like why <laughs> would you want to um, be considered for this role? Something that prods a little bit more about some, you know, critical thinking about a particular aspect of the role and something that speaks to how they would approach a certain, you know, process or something like that. Um, we also ask people to reflect on their identity um, and their positionality um, in light of the fact that, you know, again, our foundational values and also just generally like the composition of the team we want people to really reflect on that uh, before they apply. So we ask people who don't have experience with, uh, don't have lived experience with uh, systems of oppression to, yeah, share with us how they think that that fits with, um, yeah, joining joining a team that does, right? So, and another thing that we then do to uh, take the <laughs> take the stress out of things, I guess, is share interview questions beforehand. So people get a briefing note, uh, which sets out again what the role is, uh, what it's about, and what are the questions that we want to discuss with them. There's there's no, uh, interestingly enough, there it actually doesn't make it harder to assess whether or not people are good candidates. You give people time to prepare, like they're going to just show up as their best selves. In a way, actually, it takes away anxiety on 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 your end as an as a potential employer that you know someone might have had I don't know a bad day or the, the question might have taken them off guard or whatever and all of those other things that you you know might think about when you look at this through through a compassionate lens. So there is um yeah in a way it kind of like levels the the playing field. Other things that we thought about was like okay there's a lot of different ways in which people can get experience and uh, develop skills to do certain things. And that's quite often not in the context of paid employment. Mm. Someone could have done a lot of community organizing uh, in their free time. Uh, a lot of people have been doing really interesting volunteering work. A lot of the you know, resistance work is unpaid, right? And that's really relevant. And you build up really strong and relevant skills. So it makes no sense to filter that out or just focus only on a qualification like a diploma or whatever. Um, so that is another thing that we try to do. We try to frame the roles when we advertise them 
as something that looks for certain competencies, certain skill sets, rather than a degree in X or a degree in Y. And then I think that the other things can kind of like be uh, summarized as just being respectful of the time uh, that people are investing in an application. So trying to respond quickly, we really aim to come back to people um, on uh, whether or not they're going to be invited for a next interview really quickly. And we let everyone know what the outcome is. And that sounds really silly, but um, we get a lot of responses actually from people who just say, like, thank you for just letting me know. And if I think back um, when I was at the law firm still and I uh, was looking for uh, human rights jobs everywhere, the number of applications I sent out and never heard anything back to, not even a no thank you. Yeah, there are too many to count. And it's just a courtesy, right? People invested time in this. They expressed interest in your organization, in your work. The least you can do is just let them know um, what the result of that is. Absolutely. It's a lot of emotional labor to send a job application. And then especially if you apply to feminist organizations or anti-racist organizations, you feel like, okay, why did you yeah. respond? Yeah, there, there's a capacity thing, right? I mean, like, and it's, I mean, it, it is, it is a lot of work, but we also feel that that just makes sense. It's the first contact that we have with the potential new colleague. It might, there might be future colleagues, even in the people that we, we don't end up working with at that point in time. And generally, there will be people from our network, from our communities. Um, yeah. So it's worth, we think it's worth the, the effort and, and the totally. time. But yeah. It does. It does take more work, but I think, yeah, again, that trade-off is a, is an easy one to, uh, yeah, yeah, to feel good about. <laughs> yeah, and then people will speak about your recruitment process, like we're doing right now, you know. So, <laughs> and, and maybe uh, just I think you also mentioned the salary, right? It's also clear to people the salary, um, and uh, the the calls are also anonymous, right? People can ask yeah. questions yeah. anonymously. Yeah. So I think yes. that's also because I find always this whole salary negotiation. Yes. I personally yeah. <laughs> find it so stressful. <laughs> it is super stressful. And I think like that, so we started with just putting the salaries in just from a transparency perspective, like people need to know what they're applying for. Yeah. Um, and um, we're now uh, actually developed a proper pay scale. So, you know, in the beginning, we're still a young organization. It was a little bit like how do the th different roles relate to each other? But we, we really developed a structure in which we're looking at, okay, it's this is not the right word for it, but it's going to have to go in capitalist framing. What is this role worth based on the level of responsibility that someone has, like both when it comes to like holding one or multiple areas of work? Um, is there line management? Another word I don't like, but mm -hmm. easy and uh, responsibility for how many people are there other responsibilities and that basically adds up to a certain yeah package if that makes sense so there's no yeah but I bring so many years of experience of whatever this is the role and this is what we can pay for this work basically and the assumption is that that is done well <laughs> and that justifies uh, a, a solid salary one of the things also that we're really trying to resist is the overall scarcity mindset that you have right in uh in the nonprofit world and yeah just kind of saying like well people need to just make a decent living like they work hard it's it's hard work that we do it's also 
from an emotional perspective, I should just point it out. It's also it's also hard work in that sense. You can't then like also expect that people are going to have extra jobs on the side to be able to make the rent or send their kids to school or whatever. So they need to be comfortable um, with the salary that we offer. And that means that it's generally uh, higher than a lot of, you know, what you see in, in the market overall. But it's also important there to kind of like think like, why why is that happening? And that's just because everyone in this landscape is trying to make sure that funders get value for money, quote unquote. And value for money is not people time, even though the people need to be <laughs> need to actually be there in order to do the projects that people are happy to finance, right? So there's, I could speak for hours about this difficult dynamic. I won't, but um, there's something there about like questioning, like what is what is it that we are willing to quote unquote pay for in our societies, and what do we think uh, that is worth? And I think it's important to to resist that notion that this kind of work isn't quote unquote worth a certain level of salary just because it doesn't actually bring any profit um, in in the capitalist sense uh, of the word. Thank you so much for saying this. Thank you. Because I'm tired of people saying, oh, people who work in these kind of organizations or in the NGOs, they, they shouldn't make money or they shouldn't make that much money. And I'm like, really? What about the bankers and all these people that destroy the world? I mean, I'm putting it very simplistic out here, but yes, thank you so much for explaining it so well and for defending this this viewpoint. Yes. We mentioned it already, you mentioned it already a little bit, the collectivity, um, th the fact that political work, social justice work is tiring. There's a lot of emotional labor attached to it. So can you talk to us about the importance of love, of vulnerability, of collective care um, as part of political work and, and towards achieving social justice? Wow, that's, that's a beautiful question. I think that there is a need to constantly be aware of the fact that this is work that no one can do on their own. And I mean that not only in the sense of that you need networks of support, that you need teams, etc. All of those things are true. But also we need to think about the intergenerational aspect of the work that we're doing. And I think that just like a really healthy awareness of the fact that you're probably not going to be around yourself to complete whatever struggle you're involved in helps think through like how you can create work that can be handed over, right? And that other people can take up that for when you're no longer around or you're no longer able to kind of engage. There are others who can pick up the baton, right? And 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 continue. And I guess that's uncomfortable uh, in certain ways, right? Nobody likes to really think about their own expiration date <laughs> in, in whatever sense of the word you want to interpret that. But it is, I, I do think it's fundamental. And I think that while you're doing it, it's important to do it in such a way that you can still kind of like feel the, the energizing urgency of it, if I can put it that way. You're not going to be able to spark a lot of fundamental change or activism with the people around you if it's a chore <laughs> your activism and that is that is a tall order right especially if for, if people are doing it out of necessity 
but I think that the in a in a strange way that the joy can still be found in the fact that you're doing it in community, even if the fact that you are necessitated to engage in the activism is of course an injustice in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But there there is this kind of like this aspect to it also that is that is beautiful in the sense that you're resisting collectively and in community. Yeah, when you when you shared earlier that there will be cases that will be lost or maybe there will be cases where you say okay i don't even think it's worth it to to go to court but you will win something different like at least that's what i heard in your response <laughs> the, the the community the organizing the grassroots activism the coming together for me it's like i always say feminism became my home you know like it's my home because i come together with people that we think politically the same way and and we we are united in our struggles and our political convictions and this is this is love i i feel so loved when i'm with with my people you know when 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 we are together and it's it's healing there's so much more to it that um also if we speak about the, the whole idea of the family this nucleus right but it's also like the chosen family that this idea and through all of this you're breaking also these patriarchal notions the capitalist notions so that's why also i find love and collective care and this coming together so powerful and so so beautiful it's it's amazing so yes and and this what you said not looking at things like a chore we're doing things from the heart it's it's different <laughs> so um yeah and you no Before I ask you this, I will ask you something else. I want to know about a memory, if you want to share a memory with us that had an impact on your life, or maybe even a memory that influenced your, if I can say, professional, even though I don't like this word so much, like your work trajectory or your activist trajectory, or any memory that you want to share. But um, yeah, is there a memory that you want to share that had an impact on your life? Yeah, there, um, and it's in a very un kind of like picturesque setting. It is in the dressing room of the dental um, faculty of the University of Amsterdam. I, before going to law school, I studied to be a dentist. This was a decision that I made when I was 17 and I was just finishing high school and had no idea <laughs> what I wanted to study. But I had a grandfather who uh, had been a dentist all his life, really liked it. I was like, oh, great. You know, uh, it's a combination of, um, you know, some medical stuff, some kind of like, you know, doing things with your hands, like sounds nice, you know. So I enrolled and I started and uh, first year so busy that you don't even have time to think about whether or not you like anything. Turns out that it's really difficult to actually, you know, drill exact forms in, in you know, artificial <laughs> teeth. You have to learn a lot of uh, uh, anatomy and things like that. And I, yeah, so you're just focused on kind of getting through that first year. The second year, things relax a little bit and there's more focus on uh, treating patients. And it was, I think, into the second or third month of the of the second year that I was getting ready to kind of do one of those kind of, you know, kindly, some people volunteer to be treated by <laughs> dentistry students, which is very brave. Um, and I was getting changed. I was putting on my my white, uh, you know, dentist uh, outfit. And I was just like, I really don't like this. I just realized that I, I just didn't enjoy it at all. And then the second thought that went into my head was like, I could just quit, which 
doesn't sound very revolutionary, but for someone who until that point in time had just, you know, always done her exams, went to school, did well, got nice grades, like, you know, there was nothing rebellious about me at all <laughs> when I was when I was young. And then all of a sudden I just realized that I was doing something I didn't enjoy and that I could actually walk away from it. I think that that uh, has freed me to to undertake new things without feeling too too scared, <laughs> I guess, uh, to try. I it's not that I recklessly kind of go into things like I don't have the the confidence of a mediocre white man, but I do try to channel that from time to time when I'm hesitating about trying a new thing, you know you know, what would Rob or John or Bob or whatever do <laughs> in this situation? And I try to remind myself of that moment where I was doing something I didn't enjoy. I stopped doing it. And I actually didn't know for about a year and a half what I wanted to do, which was for me a really long period of time of actually not really knowing. So I took a job and whatever. And at some point I got bored and really wanted to go back to university. And this is how I ended up in law school, which then turned out to be the perfect fit. And also knowing that it worked out fine and kind of that it was okay to be <laughs> uncertain of what was going to happen next after having a plan for all of your life at that point in time, which was like only 20 or so years, but still if you've always had a plan and you always knew what you were going to do next, it's quite an experience just be without anything for a little bit. But I think it set me free in a way to, yeah, kind of have faith that it will work out and you will find your way. And also that it's okay to try something and just, you know, if it's not working out to quit. Thank you. Maybe I needed to hear this. <laughs> Do you want to share a book with us? A book okay. that you think everybody should read? Yeah, everyone should read uh, Order Lord, uh, Sister Outsider. Um, it's just the best uh, collection of essays and speeches uh, in the world. It uh, is so timeless. In some ways that is sad because like some of the things that mm. she describes is just like, really, we are having these conversations right now, like still. But also... Um, the inside is so profound and she's so wonderfully concise and direct in her analysis. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful reads there. They apply to all sorts of things <laughs> um, in your life and that you might encounter in, in work contexts. And what I also love about it is that they, they remain relevant and they, they change in nuance in their meaning over time as your own insight also evolves. I've, I've quite often find when I revisit some of the essays that, you know, things that I would have underlined <laughs> five mm -hmm. years ago, I would now kind of like focus on different segments or um, just kind of be like, oh, wow, yeah, this is actually so appropriate for this or that situation that I'm dealing with right now. I really, yeah, I think it's a fabulous book. And I think it's a it's a great lesson of just being fearless in standing in who you are, which I think is really inspirational. And um, yeah, this is why I think everyone should read it. Your silence will not protect you. This is like, for me, the oh, she has been very healing for me. And I've honored her many times in my podcast. 
Yeah. I'm sure I was like I was thinking like I'm sure many people have recommended her writings. That it's uh... I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I think she should be coming up in salt. She's a big part of it, so I'm happy that you mentioned her. <laughs> no, no. Yes, I don't think we can mention her enough. And as you say, you always discover something else, and in, in, in her and in her writings, like it is with many writings, of course. Uh, who has been your salt? Yeah, I don't want to be really cheesy, but that would be my husband. <laughs> um, if it's not a person, then my dog comes second. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Both. Uh, but it it would be it would be my husband. So we've been together for ten years now, and I've been like single for a really long time before we met, and I wasn't that convinced that I was going to meet someone who was going to be a good match for me. And it's been such a wonderful surprise, and it's still such a wonderful surprise <laughs> um, that you can actually be with someone who who knows you really well and where you can actually fully be yourself. I find what I find difficult about um, relationships at times, like also in friendships and so on, that there's that there has to be an aspect of self censorship or uh, reducing yourself. To not overwhelm or something or other. I don't mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this in a way like I'm so fabulous kind of way, but just, you know, I'm, I appreciate that I can be intense <laughs> for people at times. <laughs> um, and it's really just so liberating to be with someone where you don't have, you don't have that. And also just in whose company, even the most boring things are actually really nice. Yeah. It's, I feel really lucky um, with that. And if I can also just sing the praise of my dog for a moment. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I will say that um, he is really good at uh, reminding me that you can just really be completely in the moment. And I don't mean that in a kind of like um, fuzzy kind of mindfulness sort of way, but he is, he's just, he's there. Like he, um, if it's like digging a hole or playing with a ball mm. or just sleeping or, um, you know, cuddling with you or whatever, he's there. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of like thinking about a second ago or what's going to happen the next minute. He's there. And I, it's just besides the fact that our dog is very cute. It's also uh, just such a wonderful reminder that, you know, to just not always be thinking about what happened yesterday. And relive conversations that were uncomfortable or whatever, or stressing about what's going to happen next, but to just really be present. Yeah. And uh, so that's um, besides again, that is very cute and and very nice, our dog. <laughs> and he's the, the the mascot of Systemic. Yes, Systemic, yes, right? yes, exactly. Yeah, Sambal. <laughs> he's named after um uh you know the the, um, the sauce, the, like the hot sauce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. This is very beautiful what you shared. Thank you so much. Do you have a question for me? Yes. Um I really I, I really love this project. It's 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 wonderful. I am um well, I have two questions, but you, you can pick which one you answer. <laughs> I guess um one is like what brought you to to storytelling, kind of like as a central premise for this. The other question that I have is what 
how what do you hope that it um that it stirs in people um how do you hope that it that it impacts them listening to your work thank you so much for asking this beautiful question my my very personal reason for choosing storytelling as the format of the podcast is because i was raised uh, in a culture of shame with the idea of uh, we do not talk about certain things you need to be strong and you need to go through things alone you cannot trust others and i also grew up with a very wrong concept about what strength means um one of the things is like don't cry suck it up life is hard um and that was also related uh, to the setting and the surroundings i grew up in the country i grew up in so for me sharing our stories is is a liberation it's it's healing and it's a huge thing for for me personally and on this journey of mine um i found feminism which uh, in my younger years i despised because i associated it with an elitist um movement but then um through especially women of color um i fell in love with feminism and feminism gave me a home and it completely changed my life and in that setting also salt was born and then um i quit my job i went back to uni i did a master in gender studies and that's where i encountered academic terms and theories for the things that i felt and i understood that the personal is political and the personal doesn't need to be hidden um and it's part of knowledge production and um doing my studies I actually found was what i was looking for and i learned about feminist knowledge production and based on that i've actually written uh, also a text that i usually add to um to, to the to, to to the text that i send to the people i speak with as part of our preparation and it says and it's also on the website that sold is an internet intersectional feminist podcast where we focus on centering personal stories oral histories and testimonies by positioning sold's guests as speakers readers and analysts of themselves and their context we don't record those narratives just for their own sake we do not expose our guests neither exhaust them nor reduce them solely to their personal stories on sold we have no interest in selling testimonies for sensational purposes in the perpetuation of stereotypes and invasion of personal lives so through telling our stories here on sold we react to the injustices of the world we claim our testimonials as part of feminist knowledge production as a form of resistance aiming at creating solidarity among us positioning us as agents and describers of our own realities and we document our stories against predominant discourses oppressive regimes one-sided knowledge production colonialism oppression in moments of history where narratives are either not known manipulated or erased so we remember to resist to disturb people's comfort zones to document our narratives to withstand being told we are too much and in doing so we collaborate with each other aiming at contributing to achieving social justice so for me sharing those stories on sold it's it's revolutionary for me yes thank you for this question yes thank you very much thank you for sharing that's really beautiful and thank you thank you so much for 
being on Salt, for answering the questions, having this beautiful conversation and uh, getting to know you better. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Of course, I want you to check out the recruitment policy if you are in recruitment or in HR or whatever, anything that is uh, related to that. And I want you to check out Systemic Justice. Follow them on Instagram. Check out their website. And yeah, thank you so much. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.